All right, welcome, good morning. Uh, thank you for being back here today. We are uh, going to go ahead and tackle what is going to be the very last for now um, section in our 20 questions uh, that we've been going through of um, 20 essential questions uh, for Christians to know. If you were here last week or if you listened on the podcast, you know that uh, Peter uh, gave a very excellent uh, lesson on what is election, what is also sometimes known as predestination. Uh, the words election and predestination might have been a little, uh, I, I don't want to say new, but different for uh, people who may have grown up in churches of Christ or even in other churches where um, that theology isn't as uh, strong. Um, but I think Peter did a really good job of, of laying out what the theology is and what the Bible says about uh, this concept of God um, choosing people to save. Um, and it was a really good talk. And, and I bring that up because it's important for today's lesson. Uh, if you were here last week, I think it will help benefit the discussion we have today as some of the concepts are related. So today's question is, what does it mean to become a Christian? And for some of the people sitting in here who maybe like me have been a Christian for like 25 years, you may wonder, okay, I've got it. I've, I've been this thing for a long time. Um, but I found in preparation for this, um, and I think you probably feel this way too, that what does it mean to become a Christian is a question that, as Christians, we're probably asking ourselves every single day. Uh, because we encounter new things every day, new emotions every day, new things happen in our lives every day that continually challenge us to remember um, this commitment we've made and how to go about doing that. So I'm going to start just very, very basic and broad before we get into um, kind of the, the difficult meat of what I've been asked to talk about today. So what does it mean to become a Christian? Uh, I'm going to provide what I think are 10 basic elements of, of what it means to become a Christian, right? So we've spent some time working through uh, the various uh, processes and powers that lead up to this place where we have an opportunity to enter into this relationship. And so once you enter into it, what does that mean? So one, it means that God has taken us from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Two, it means that we have recognized our sinful and doomed condition and then repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as both our Lord and Savior. So I think everyone's with me right here. Uh, it means that we are fully forgiven of our sins and no longer face God's wrath. Four, it means that we are a new creation in Christ. We are no longer a slave to sin, uh, but we are now a slave or bond servant to Jesus Christ. Five, it means that we were only saved from, not, it means that we were saved from something, hell and punishment, but also for something. And I think this is where we're going in the future. Uh, so it's just a little bit of a preview, but we were saved from hell and from punishment, but we were saved for sanctification and glorification. It means that we are now the temple of God's Holy Spirit. 
It means that we are supernaturally gifted and grafted into both God's eternal family and temporal, temporal res- representation here on earth, which is the local church. It means that we are salt and light to a world decaying and dark. It means that we are in an ongoing loving relationship with the Father through the Son, Christ Jesus. And it means that we are God's ambassadors in a strange land that is not our home and that we have been given the task of sharing the gospel and disciplining his children. So that's kind of a broad view of when you become a Christian, here are these things, these concepts, these ideas that you are You bury that old person and you raise into this new life with these new ideas. As I was thinking through this, I I kind of thought about it in terms of of marriage, which I think is appropriate. You know, the Bible describes uh, the church as being the bride of Christ. So this, this, this very idea of marriage that God instituted is very much a representation of of what we are, what this is. Um, But I think about it in this way. Uh, and I think maybe you all should too, before you were married, be it man or woman, you were one thing. You were by yourself. You had an identity, right? Some people shed that identity earlier than others. I was 30. Uh, really grown into that identity, but I got married, right? And what happens after you get married? There's a new identity. It may not feel immediate. You know, the Bible talks about becoming one flesh with your spouse. So there is, there's, there's something that happens to you, right? Well, as a married person, that new identity dictates how you go about your life. It go, dictates the priorities in your life, right? The things that were once my priorities before I was married can't be my priorities anymore. They're things that might have been appropriate for me to do, situations appropriate for me to be involved in, that now that I have a new identity as a married person, as a spouse, is, is different. Um, and so I think just at its core, uh, as we become a Christian, it's important to use that, that kind of concept that we have shed the identity that we had before. And the identity that we are born into is a new identity with new goals uh, new priorities. So that's just the, the, the very basic, um, and, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on that part of it. Uh, the book that we've been working through um, addresses this issue in two different ways. And, and uh, I want to give kind of the same disclaimer that Peter gave last week. Uh, you may not... Uh, agree with everything that is presented. I don't necessarily know that every single thing in the book um, that we've been kind of using as a guideline um, is the approach that I believe that scripture lays out. What I want to be cognizant of here is that when we delve into some of these uh, deeper, murky (laughs) theological waters, We're dealing with questions that uh, Christians for thousands of years have wrestled with um, and attempted to weigh. And there's some understanding why people take different approaches to different things. Peter, I think, uh, previewed it a little bit last week. We talked about uh, Calvinism being one uh, distinct path and Arminianism. 
kind of say that wrong. Um, Arminianism being a second path um, in terms of what does it mean to be predestined or to be elected. So we're going to take that concept and move into what this book is calling. There's two different types of callings that people receive that lead them to Christ, that get them from that old dead relationship to that new creature that they are. The first is what the book describes as an effective calling, or sometimes it's referred to as an effectual calling, right? If something's effective, it means it works, right? So there's an effective calling. And then the second calling that we're probably going to spend more of our time on today because it's more relevant to what you and I do day to day is called the gospel calling, or sometimes it's called a general call. Um, so I, wanted, I just wanted to, to lead with that. Uh, one of the things that's very interesting, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to support everything that I say today in terms of these concepts with scripture. Uh, I think it's important if you have a Bible with you, if you have your phone with the Bible with you, to turn to some of that scripture with me um, as we do that today, uh, because I want you to see these things. Um, I encourage comments, especially in this class today. Uh, this material is challenging. I do not represent myself to you as an expert on these things. Uh, I studied these materials to uh, help be the best guide I can, um, but it's very possible that there's people in here um, who have uh, different views or have in their own time really thought about these things. Um, and I know that we would all benefit from hearing um, those comments. So I, I welcome and I will try to pause and, and, and um, make places for uh, you all to, to be involved. So what is an effective calling? Not only is it something that works, uh, this is described as the kind of calling is a summons from the king of the universe. It is a summons that can't be denied, and it brings about the desired response in people's hearts. This calling is an act of God the Father and speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that the, they respond in saving faith. So what I want to, before we, we go any further, I want to be clear that this effective call that is a call from God and not from man is something different than when I go to try to talk to someone or teach a class or invite someone to church. There's something different about what God's doing than what I'm doing, okay? Um, but to be clear, God can use me and my gospel call to bring about his effective call, right? If I don't go talk to somebody, it's possible they don't hear. And by me allowing them to hear with that gospel call, God can be effective in their lives. And so one of the ways I look at it, and it's an adage I'm sure that we've all heard, um, and it's something that's been used to encourage people when we talk about evangelism and we know that evangelism is hard and you start thinking about, I'm going to go talk to people and they're going to look at me, they're going to laugh at me, they're going to say, you're crazy. Or it might just be coworkers I have and then when they decline my invitation to church, I have to work with them every day and feel like the weirdo who said, come to my church. Um, and so it's hard, right? But one of the things that we've, and I've heard to help kind of calm those nerves is it's not on you, 
right? It's not on you to go out there and save somebody. I can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. Jesus can save people. So what happens is we plant the seed, right? And I know you've all heard this. We plant the seed. God waters and gives the increase, right? All we can do really is go out and start the conversation. Uh, but the growth and the change and the regeneration only comes from God. So I want to take that as, as kind of our, our, our premise for there is something that God does and there's something that we do. Um, I want to be very clear. Uh, although um, the Calvinist approach talks about irresistible grace, uh, and, and Peter kind of hint, hinted to some of that, um, and there are some people and some, some, uh, some schools of thought that this effective call is a call that in no way can be denied. If God chooses to call you, there's nothing you can do. You will respond to that call. Okay. That is one school of thought. I want to look at Scripture uh, as best as we can to make sense of what God's doing versus what we're doing. Um, one of the things I'm going to try to do, I'm going to write this out. I'm going to probably misspell it or mispronounce it, which is why I want to write it. Uh, this concept of calling is, uh, surprising to me, used an incredible amount of times in the Bible. In the Old Testament alone, there's a term, and again, I apologize, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it correctly, but I'm going to go with kara. In the Old Testament, this means to call out or to invite. This term is used 689 times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there's this word, uh, I'm going to say it's kaleo, and that is used 148 times. So just based on the sheer usage of this term alone, and right, we're going from the Old Testament being in Aramaic or Hebrew to Greek. The sheer usage of this words alone, I think, demonstrates to us that there is an invitation, there is a call that's inherent in this whole process that God has placed throughout Scripture. And so what I want to just... I guess kind of share with you, regardless of even getting to the point of having to fully explain or understand what this effective call is, I want it to be very clear that it is undeniable that God calls people to himself. It is undeniable. It is replete through scripture. Okay. Uh, some of the, the verses that I think stand out um, in Acts uh, 239 is the first one that I want to look at. All right, Acts 239. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And in Romans 8, 
verse 30. Romans 8, verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this goes on and on. I'm not going to read every one, but Romans 9, 11, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 26. Uh, I want to read Galatians 1, 6. Galatians 1, 6. Uh, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, I wanted to stop there and read that one because although it is very clear and undeniable that God does indeed call people to himself, right? This verse points out that it is possible, right, to desert uh, the call to which we've been offered. Right? And there's obviously other verses in the Bible. So this is kind of the first place I want to stop and think about this idea of an effective call. God calls people. There's no question. And those who have been uh, uh, redeemed through Christ accepted that call. But, and I think this is where we really have to, to wrestle with this idea of a call that is undeniable, that can't be refused. The Bible makes clear that just because you heeded a call at one time does not mean that you can't desert that call, right? We're told to hold fast to the faith. Why hold fast if I can't desert the call, right? Clearly you can. So I just, I want to make that distinction, um, but I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I, I guess, minimize uh, the role that God's distinct call plays um, in what's happening. I have here, and I apologize, it's taking me just a second. I was going to use my phone, which would have been a little bit faster, um, but that's recording. So if I can get to 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, 14. Yeah, that actually might be better. Kyle, if you want to read 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. He called us to the gospel so that we may obtain that glory. I think this is really powerful stuff to think about. It's not as simple as just we on earth going out, teaching, <coughs> and then hopefully things happen, right? There is a call that God has presented to us. And I want to express to you, I guess, how I think this happens. And that is, the second part is the gospel call. Before Jesus uh, departed the earth after he was raised, he told his disciples to go into all the earth and make disciples, right? There is something that we have to do. There's something that we have to be a part of. There's no reason for us to, to, to bear um, what you might call a burden of evangelizing if God doesn't need us to do it. You know, we are, as you've often heard, the hands and feet of Jesus. We carry out uh, the, the, the desires and the goals um, 
So there's two things I want to talk about with the gospel call. The first, um, and the reason it's called a general call, there's really two ways that through, um, there's two ways that all people, regardless of whether they heed the individual, the call to, uh, uh, to turn to Christ, see God, right? The first is called uh, vocatio realis, which is the call from things. Romans 1, 19, uh, Romans 1, 19 through 21 um, talks about this, but it is, that verse essentially says that everyone who lives on this planet and can see nature and see what God's created has no excuse for not knowing that God exists, right? There is a general call to God that every person on this planet sees just by living, breathing, and existing. But secondly, and where we come in is it's the, the word they use is vocatio verbalis is from words. It's the words of the gospel. Uh, there's scriptures uh, illustrating this general call. Uh, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Um, Jesus says, uh, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Um, the distinction that's made here is since this call goes out to everyone, Jesus says, come to me all who are burdened, right? And I will give you rest. This call does go out to everyone. This call that we feel through nature goes out to everybody. But not everybody is saved. So why is that? And the author of this text would argue it's because that call is not effective or it's not an effectual call, right? Um, before I go any further, does anybody, is there anything that anybody wanted to add to any of this? I know this is really kind of heavy theological stuff, um, but I don't want to steamroll over comments that might exist. Okay, no. All right, so here's how I make it make sense in my head. The first thing that I try to remember, right, and uh, try to keep this in perspective, any time that I try to think too hard and don't understand God's will, don't understand why God does what he does, don't understand why God works the way he works, I try to remember that God's ways are not my ways. God's ways are better than my ways. They're smarter than my ways, right? We have, I think, a responsibility to use the intellect that we've been given to uh, to search the scriptures and reason out what God wants for us. But there's going to come a time that it's a little bit hard for us to use our logic to fully understand. So what I would argue to you is that there is a mystery surrounding the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and salvation. Don't be confused by it. Don't get lost on the subject. Don't get bogged down with how the mechanics work. I was talking um, with Monique and Matt before class, and, and one of the things I thought, I don't know how my microwave works. <laughs> I don't. I'm sure there's people in here who could tell me after class exactly how it works. I don't, I don't know, right? I, I think I somewhat understand the science, but I don't really know how it works. I know that I can put some food in it and press some buttons, and I can eat the food afterwards, right? It works for me. And so what I, what I want you to think about with this is this concept of the effective call. It's interesting. 
And, it's, and I, I, we need to understand that God calls people to himself, and that's different. And it is something separate from when I go try to invite someone to church or tell somebody that you know, they need Jesus. It is a different thing, okay? But whether you fully understand um, every aspect of that or not, what matters is that you're here, that you understand your sinful nature, that you understand that only Jesus can save you from that sinful nature, that you repent, be baptized, and follow God. So at the end of the day, if you put your food in the microwave and it comes out warm, you don't have to always know every inner working, okay? We're just doing the best we can here to kind of explain some of these tensions. So what I think um, the author is getting at here is that God works through us, okay? You and I have a responsibility to teach others and to share in the ways we can. That might be teaching a Bible class. That might be preaching. That might be going to a ministry that uh, provides communion to people who otherwise would not have the opportunity to do so, right? We have a responsibility to offer a gospel call. But what happens with that gospel call, whether it's accepted or rejected, is where God's power comes in, right? Because even if someone says, okay, I like this thing you're telling me, that doesn't do anything, right? God has to step in and do something to that person in their acceptance of Jesus Christ. So there is a call, okay? And, and, that, and that's, I think, where I want to get to is just that... Um, we have a responsibility, and God has miraculous power that steps in and finishes what we plant. And I think that's the best way to look at this uh, concept of an effective call from God versus what we do. Uh, really briefly, I wanted to go over what uh, are considered, I guess, the three basic elements of a gospel call, right? Uh, an explanation of the facts concerning salvation, an invitation to respond to Christ personally, in repentance and in faith, and a promise of forgiveness and eternal life, right? This is the message. If you were going to talk to somebody and you said, and you needed to figure out what do I tell this person, how do I get this person to understand that they need to come to Christ, that's the message. So what are the, what are the basic facts of the gospel? Romans 3.23 says, all people have sinned. Romans 6.23 says, the penalty for our sin is death. Romans 5, 8 says Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin. So those are the basic facts of the gospel, right? We're sinful. Our sin separates us from God. And there's a penalty that must be paid. But Jesus was our propitiation. He did it for us. Uh, the author kind of goes through... Um, which is an interesting question. Is it enough to simply state the facts about the gospel or quote a passage like John 3.16? And he says, the facts isn't enough. There must be an invitation to repent and believe this good news personally. Um, so that's something important. And, and I think that, I think part of the Church of Christ tradition, especially, I don't know that I can think of many sermons that I listened to growing up um, that didn't end with, um, you know, the preacher saying, 
And if today is the day that your heart's been pricked and, you know, come forward um, and repent and be baptized. So that, that, that's something that I think is really baked into to the way that we have, many of us, I think, have worshipped. Um, the overall, uh, I guess, message here before I end is that becoming a Christian is a complex process, right? It's simple, but it's complex in terms of the fact that uh, God plays a role in our salvation, we play a role in our own salvation, and those around us play a role in giving that message to us. Um, it is important for us to remember that we don't earn that salvation. There's nothing that we do um, <coughs> that, that gets us that. Uh, in terms of responding through uh, faith and repentance, you know, God called us to be faithful and, and, and have faith in him. Um, people in the Bible uh, who were called to repentance and to faith were baptized to demonstrate that faith. Um, I often think of, um, there's a movie called Facing the Giants that probably all of you were forced to see in high school or college. Uh, it's a good movie though, and it, it, uh, there's, a, there's a concept in there that if someone prays for rain, if a farmer prays for rain, but doesn't go plant his field, did he have faith? No, he, he didn't, because he didn't think the rain was gonna happen. He prayed for the rain, he goes and plants his field, and God provided that rain. Uh, God has provided to us uh, what we should do with that faith. God's asked us to be baptized. And so that is the picture of what does it mean? How do you become a Christian? And before we end today, and I, I just want to tell you a brief story. It's a story that was uh, relayed to me when I was a child um, many, many times. And it takes place, or really it begins uh, in the early 1960s. And there was a man who's just going to be a circle. Um, there was a man in the Navy in San Diego, California, who had a coworker um, that he liked. They talked a little bit, um, but he felt that same thing that we all feel with our coworkers and our friends. And um, he wanted to invite that coworker to church. He was a little scared to do it. Uh, felt like it might not be received, uh, but he got up the courage to do it. And that coworker uh, came to church with him. And over time, um, he became baptized. That coworker um, taught his wife, who became baptized. They had uh, two daughters uh, who became Christians. This daughter had two more daughters who became Christians. This daughter married a man who became a Christian. Uh, this woman married a man who became a Christian. They had three children who became Christians. This child baptized his wife. There's like six kids here. Um, there's some kids here. I'm right here. And you know, I don't know this guy's name. But 60 years ago, he invited my grandfather to church, a non-Christian. And um, the gospel call is real. 
right? It's real. Uh, the gospel call happened. God called my grandfather. And so this guy was brave enough to, to invite that coworker, right? And look at all these people in 60 years. And this is just, I mean, the dynastic version of this, right? Because this is my dad who's baptized people. Um, my dad uh, very recently baptized his parents, right? So I want to be clear to you that 60 years from today, there could be a 30-something teaching a Bible class because this week you decided to talk to somebody about Jesus. And so when we talk about what does it mean to become a Christian, it means all of the things we've talked about today, but it also means this. It also means that one person can change so many lives. And I just invite you to fully lean into uh, this relationship and this promise that we have been called to. Uh, thank you for your time. That's great.